The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. thinking of the subject of prayer, instead of studying a particular book of Scripture as we usually do, I've told you in the last few weeks then now that into the fall we're looking at a topic, the topic of prayer itself, God-centered prayer, which actually is quite different than what many people think prayer is. Today, looking with you in the book of 1 John, a letter written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of John, we believe. I'm reading just 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. John begins to conclude his letter this way. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. May God instruct us of this his own holy word. Tomorrow's once-in-a-century solar eclipse I think offers us an analogy possible to consider related to Christian prayer. I'm not wanting to stretch the phenomenon of nature too far to make an artificial analogy, but I think it applies. If we think of God, our all-sovereign, all-knowing, glorious creator and redeemer as being like the sun, shining in its brilliance in the sky, giving warmth and life to our planet, Our God is so wonderful and so grand that our eyes cannot really gaze directly at him for more than mere seconds without turning away. But then think of the moon interposing itself. And think of that perhaps representing our sin, coming between our God and our sight and understanding of him, being eclipsed that our view of God the Father is actually eclipsed by our pride, by our disobedience, by our selfishness, and so many sinful things that we have represented in our lives. Even those who do know Christ as Savior and Lord certainly have sin represented in the ways that they pray and do not come to have a full and right view of our gracious Father but rather barriers that we make ourselves come in between. I think it's probably about 30 years ago now that my understanding of prayer was really revolutionized by the truth that is represented in this short passage of 1 John 5. I would use a word just as strong as revolutionized because probably 
before that, like many other people, I thought of prayer as bringing my list of needs and requests to God and wondering quite often why he didn't seem to have full regard for those things because he didn't rush to bring them all to pass exactly as I asked for them. And then all of a sudden, I just the truth of these verses jumped off the page at me. And I have thought of prayer differently ever since then. We've known different people who maybe have a vacation home somewhere and it's used by various members of their families or friends that they allow to use a cabin or a beach house or something. And so in order to make it easily available somewhere on the property in a place you have to be told, uh, there's a key hanging on a nail or a hook just out of sight, but if you're told where it is, you can find it. You get the key and you get access to the vacation property. I like to say that in this verse, there's a golden key hanging on a hook. And if you know how to take hold of it and understand what it's saying to you, it ought to radicalize your understanding of prayer. Instead of being the rest of your life like a burglar breaking and entering the presence of God, storming in to say, here I am, do these things for me, you can be a person that takes hold of the golden key and sees the door of prayer open as God has designed that it will. Instead of coming with your man-centered ideas of how can I get what I want from God, hopefully this passage will teach you what's wrong with that question. I hope you'll see what's wrong with that question before I finish this morning. In 1 John 5.13, the apostle is restating the major theme of this whole book when he says, I write these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That's the theme of the book, that you would have an assurance, a certainty of knowledge that you belong to Christ that you have a whole new standing in the love of God because of Christ and a whole new standing in relation to other believers and the kingdom of God and be sure about it. But then as almost a kind of postscript, John adds to that confidence in verse 14 an accompanying confidence that we can ask anything according to God's will and he hears it and when we ask that we can know that we will have it. Now, some people say, fantastic, unbelievable, sounds impossible. I don't understand what that means. I'm wanting you to listen carefully this morning because the key phrase here is the phrase, anything according to his will. Let's think about that together. First of all, and I gather up some strands of what has been said already in the first couple weeks when I say that 1 John 5 here is chiming in with other Scripture and saying that prayer means aligning myself to God's will, not bending God to my will. i say it again. It's a simple statement, but maybe it didn't sink in. Prayer means aligning myself to God's will, not bending God to my will. Most people think the other thing. We read the condition here. There's a condition for asking things of God. If you ask according to his will, 
Now that's quite different than just running into the presence of God again with your list and saying, okay, God, here are my things I've got written down here that I need today, and I'm sure you're going to want to do these for me, and I'm sure if you don't do them, I'll go tell people that prayer doesn't work because you didn't answer prayer. If you'd back up just one page, in my Bible it's right across the page, 1 John 3, 21 and 22 reads this way, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have this confidence before God, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. In other words, if we're living in the will of God, doing the things that please Him, obeying Him, clearly trusting Him with our lives, we enter into a phase of confidence that we are able to ask the things He wants because our lives are already in harmony with Him and doing that which He has asked us to do. A writer, John Stott, many of you know the name of John Stott, a great minister of the Lord who is now in heaven but wrote much wisdom about Scripture, said this, Here we see that prayer is not a convenient device or a charm used to impose ourselves on God. Stott said, no, it is his prescribed way for us to subordinate our will to his perfect ways. And in light of this, every prayer becomes a variation upon the theme of not my will, but yours be done. Most of you, I'm sure, if you're an adult, you have a checking account. And when you got the checking account, your bank gave you a debit card or a cash card, whichever you might prefer to call it, and you know how that functions. It's not a credit card. You're not borrowing money from the bank to buy things. You are simply drawing funds that you already have in your account to get cash at the ATM or pay for groceries or whatever you use it for. Children if it's not explained to them, think these debit cards are great things and they can't wait to be a grown-up and get one of these because it must be the answer to every problem of life. All you do is pull out a piece of plastic and present it and you can have cash spewing out of a machine. I remember having my five-year-old granddaughter who's now uh, well into double digits in her age, but the first time she was with me when I stopped at a drive-thru and used a debit card and got cash. And she said, Papa, they just gave you money because you have a plastic card? And I could see the visions of the future developing before her eyes. Where do I get one of those? That's a wonderful card. Well, any adult knows it's a wonderful card only to the extent that you have in the bank an amount sufficient to cover whatever it is you're withdrawing or spending upon. They're not loaning you money. And in fact, you'd be refused, I guess, if you have never tried to go past what I knew was in my account, but I'm sure they must not give it to you. There must be some kind of a big buzzer and police cars swarm out and everything else if you try to take more money than you have. Well, prayer is like that in a way, allowing you to withdraw what is in your account according to the will of God, according to the plans of God. It asks you to draw upon those things. It is not a credit card to pile up things that you do not have already or that are not somehow yours to claim. There are people who see prayer as more like the Aladdin's lamp sort of thing. You know, you rub the lamp and the great genie comes and says, what wish do you have? 
the heavenly bellboy runs out and says, Sir, what can I do for you? And there are people who really think that praying is like, you know, going on your computer and shopping online and Amazon Prime says, You'll have it tomorrow. What's your desire? I'll send it to you. But our text in 1 John 5.14 does give us a great assurance, a tremendous assurance. But what it assures us of is that we are asking according to God's will. And those are the things that we are promised to receive. By the way, there's a great definition of prayer found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're interested, you could look. I don't mind if you look in your hymnal while I'm speaking, but in the back of the hymnal you can find the Shorter Catechism. And question and answer number 98 there asks about what is prayer, and the answer given is prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with the confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's a good, concise definition. An offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with the confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's the golden key I'm talking about to God-centered prayer, asking for that which the Father is more than happy to give because it's what he has prepared for you. All right, so right away, many of you see, well, it seems like there's a problem. In fact, it seems like this is the contract that I might sign somewhere that has a huge loophole in the fine print. I thought I was signing a contract that said, anything you want... Whoops, back up. Anything you want, if it's in accordance with the will of God. How can I really know God's will? That's the second thing I talk about today. Is it a loophole? Is God tricking us? Is he leading us on, but then putting a stop sign up and saying, you know, you better check out what's according to my will because it's not just any old thing. This could even sound to a cynical mind like Mark Twain. I quoted him a couple weeks ago, a very cynical man, did not believe the Bible. Mark Twain said, before praying for rain, be sure you check the weather report. So in other words, you might get what you pray for if natural occurrences were going to bring it about anyway. That's Mark Twain's idea. Well, the truth of what we're saying is, before praying for anything, check what you can know already about the will of God. Now, maybe you say, how am I supposed to know the will of God? I'm just a puny man or woman. I don't know what God's will is. No, hold the phone. You do know a great deal about the will of God, at least if you have availed yourself of the many things he has made available to you. And here it is in the prayer manual. Read the manual before prayer. And God has spoken much, much about his will in terms of commandments, prohibitions, seeing the negative consequences of actions of people in the Bible who did particular things and the good consequences of others who put their trust in God. The New Testament, all kinds of principles and precepts and promises. There's lots here to help you know the will of God. The more you know the word, the more you know God's will. I used to love uh, to get, about every other year, I would buy a Rand McNally road atlas. Now with 
electronic devices pretty much telling us how, where to go to get places. We pay less attention to maps, but I'm, I've mentioned this before. I'm a map guy, okay? And I used to love to get, and, and I'd be sitting there sometimes, and my wife would come in the room, and I've got this great big two-foot by 18-inch book opened up, and I'm looking at Idaho. And she'd say, what are you, what are you looking at? I'd say, I'm looking at the map of Idaho. Why? Are we going to Idaho? No. I just want to know what's there. I want to know what the cities are like, the highways are like, the mountains, the canyons. What, in case I find myself in Idaho, I'm going to have some basic information. Sorry, you know, I just like this kind of stuff. Well, you know if you have the Rand McNally Atlas, you've got the big highways, the Route 95s, you know, all the way up and down the spine of the country. You've got the big roads, Route 80, that goes way across the, the United States. And those are the interstates, I guess we call them. You've got the state roads. You've got the county roads. And if it's a large enough town or city, they have a separate city map, and that's got many roads. It doesn't necessarily give you, though, every single detailed road. For example, our Rand McNally Atlas would have Oregon Pike, but it wouldn't have the road Roarer Drive behind us that comes into this subdivision, I don't think, anyway. Uh, you can use this to show yourself a lot. You know, if you have to go from Lancaster to Richmond, Virginia, you could get there. The big roads that will get you to Richmond are in there. But that isn't to say if you're going to your cousin's house in Richmond that your little detailed two-block-long street that your cousin lives on is shown or your cousin's driveway. But it will get you real close. It will get you probably within half a mile or even less of where you're going. Well, we say, in a sense, that's all relevant because if you have this, here's the Rand McNally Atlas with all the main roads, all the state and county roads, all the, the directions you need to know fundamentally mountains and mountains worth of stuff about the will of God. And knowing this before you pray is a tremendous help so you won't be praying stupid things. You won't be praying, for example, saying, Oh God, bless my relationship with my mistress. You know that I have a mistress, I'm married, I know this is wrong, but will you please bless that relationship? God's not going to bless that relationship. He's going to make you miserable in that relationship because you're going against his known will. And, well, that's an extreme example, but there are things like that where we are not obeying the will of God, and yet we go and ask him things, and we're surprised that he doesn't act in our favor. The Lord's normal way of telling us his will is through the Word of God. Not through mystical voices in the night, not through dreams, although he has spoken that way in the past and may again, but his primary way is through his Word. And it acts like billboards along our life's way to say, this is the way, walk this way, do this, don't do that. And the Lord assumes that those who are praying to him have come with this prior knowledge as a foundation of the will of God, and then we build on that as we pray. We say, all right, Lord, I know what interstate to take and what county road to take, but I need the last three blocks to get me to the what to do about this particular decision to take this job or not do that or take this job over here. Through prayer, we add the details, don't we? But 
the details aren't going to be helpful if you haven't built first on the foundation. You see, going to God in prayer and submitting to Him what we think is the right thing. Say, Lord, it looks to me as if I should take this job. If you want me to take this, will you give me some confirming sign? Will you give me a peace about this and all the circumstances regarding it? And then we stand back and we patiently wait and think and compare the options and maybe even seek help from wise other Christians. We weed out the different possibilities, think them through, which is most honoring to the Lord. Have you ever had to proofread a document that you wrote yourself? If you do any kind of writing, reports at work or in the academic realm or whatever, you probably have learned you're not your own best proofreader. I'm fairly good. If you give me something you wrote, I'm going to find some misspelled words and some grammar slips and whatever. But I can read my own several pages and then hand it to the secretaries in the office, and I'm chagrined when they come back with red ink in five or six places. I go, Where, how did you find that? Did I say that? I don't find my own mistakes so well. But that's part of what the process of prayer is all about taking what I think is right before God, laying it at his feet and saying, Lord, I think I'm building on what your word tells me. I don't see any major principles that I'm going against. It seems to me I should do this. I submit it to you. Will you show me if I need a change here or if this is not what you want at all? Will you slam this door in my face perhaps? You see, the question is not, can we discover the will of God? The question is, And I quote John Wesley on this, what we need is a true desire to seek the will of God along with a fixed resolution that we will do it once we know it. You see, that part's a problem too because sometimes we do know it. It's staring us right in the face and we say, okay, I think God's telling me to do this, but I don't want to do that. I have no willingness to do that. Well, that's beginning to disobey God. Thirdly, as we think today about seeking the will of God through prayer, I want to ask here what it means to pray in Jesus' name because that's really what this is asking. You know how you were taught and you hear us pray from the pulpit and you pray yourself maybe at your table or wherever you do any praying in private and you say, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, is that just kind of a mantra or a code phrase or something that we put in a prayer like we end a letter and say, sincerely yours, Michael Rogers? Is that just uh, signing off, God, in Jesus' name? Or is there really something important being said there? The Gospel of John speaks to this. Same author, John's Gospel, chapter 14, 13 and 14, Jesus speaking, said... I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And some foolish person leaps on that and says, Oh, great, I hate my job. Oh, Lord, give me a better job and and please, I want the salary to be four times what I'm making right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that how it works? I don't think so. 
To invoke a person's name means to plead on the basis of that one's character and integrity. To say, I have the authority of this person behind what I ask, and I know this person would approve entirely of what I'm asking. I had the opportunity to give a name, recommend a name of someone to a company that I knew was hiring drivers, and uh, I was pretty sure that uh, this person who needs a job would be eligible. And I, but I, instead of just giving the man the number and saying, here, call this fellow, I think he'll help you, I called the fellow also and said, I want you to know that hey, he has my recommendation, he is of good character, I would stand behind him, I hope you'll consider hiring him. That was sort of giving in the name of Michael Rogers to this employer, and not that the name of Michael Rogers means a whole lot, it really doesn't. But in that particular instance, I thought I might help open the door a little bit for this individual. In Jesus' name means we go to the Father, and whatever we're asking is what we believe Jesus the Son would ask himself. It's sort of like having his power of attorney, you could say. Or it's, it's like what happens with a foreign ambassador or a United States ambassador who goes to a foreign country. Let's put it that way. Say we have our Russian ambassador who goes to Mr. Putin with a message in the name of President Donald Trump. Putin is not interested, or I wouldn't think he's interested, in what that ambassador thinks on the particular subject. He's not going to say, Mr. Ambassador, what you think is much more important to me than what the president has to say. He's going to say, what does your president say? That's your function to tell me what your president thinks. And only that. He's only a messenger for one with greater authority. That's what it means, in a sense, to pray in Jesus' name, to go to our Father and say, Father, we have considered who your Son is in the Scripture and what he asked for and how he addressed you and everything that he was and is. And on the basis of his character and his mission and his authority, we come and ask for this particular thing. We believe we're right in doing that, but Lord, we may be wrong. There was a man of, I believe, early 20th century named Andrew Murray who wrote several books about prayer. I think the most well-known one he wrote was called With Christ in the School of Prayer. I always thought that was an intriguing title. I had the book on my shelf for many, many years before I read it just because I knew it was supposed to be an important book. And then I finally read it and found it a very good book in which Murray described that prayer was a process of you being schooled in the will of God as you came to know Jesus Christ more and more deeply, as you were like a sponge, let's say, soaking up likeness to Christ and thinking like Christ and then acting as Christ would act, you would see your prayer life be shaped by the Holy Spirit shaping Jesus Christ in your life. Now, that can't happen unless you have called Jesus your Lord. That can't happen unless you have a new birth of God's grace by faith so that the Holy Spirit is now making you, remaking you in the image of Jesus so that you will go to the Father and talk to the Father on the basis of the person and merits of Christ the Son. 
If he had not died for you in the first place, you would have no access to the Father. That's what the cross is all about. It bridges that big gap of sin between our sin and God's perfect holiness. But Christ allows us to come into the presence of God. The whole doctrine of the atonement is based in that. And and we're going to, I hope in coming weeks, see how he actually intercedes for us today, the Scripture says. So we go to the Father through the person and merits and authority of the Son, asking for the things that God, that Christ himself would ask for. On those things, we have a wonderful, marvelous guarantee, the guarantee of 1 John 5. If we ask according to his will, he hears us, and we have those requests. But if we're just asking foolishly, selfishly, full of pride, full of our own ambitions and plans, no wonder God doesn't do those things for us because they'd probably actually harm us. So I conclude this morning, and we'll see something like this in weeks to come. The simple lesson of this text is really simple, but it is radical, ladies and gentlemen. It is revolutionary. The way to get what you want from God in prayer is beginning to learn what God wants. That isn't hard, but it will radicalize your prayer life. Begin to want what God wants, and your prayer life will change. Is you, it doesn't mean everything you pray that you're always going to, you know, sort of hit the jackpot and say, well, now I have perfect knowledge today and forevermore of everything God wants. No. There's going to be times that you as a Christian are completely baffled about what God wants. Times of darkness, times of confusion. But you need to persevere in the school of prayer, as Andrew Murray called it. Daily, coming to the throne of God and saying, Lord, you've taught me this, and it seems like I see this as being right. But am I right? Lord, don't give me any peace if this isn't what you want for me. I'm striving to know what you want and then to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. What would Jesus pray for if he were in my exact situation? Knowing him, Father, what should I ask you for? Reshape my asking that it might be in conformity with you. And so a final word for today I make from Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven, A wonderful promise many of you know. And it, it chimes in with this text in 1 John 5. Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord said, I know the plans I have for you. I know what my will is for you. I have plans to bless you, not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. That means willingness to surrender all the things that are merely your foolish pride and your foolish imaginations and seek after the great things of God spelled out in his word, made known particularly in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. Let's pray together. Father, we have to admit we we really are not masters of this prayer business. No matter how long we might have been in the faith, we, every one of us, will admit to some struggles. 
to a time when prayer seems very dry and static and almost worthless, and we get up and walk away from it. But, Father, we know the chief trouble is we've let our sins, our pride, our wrong ambitions, our wrong judgments eclipse who you are. Will you teach us again and again and again to proofread our own vain prayer requests and see where the mistakes are and come to a greater understanding of what it means to pray within the mind of Christ. Work by your Holy Spirit to reshape our requests, our hopes, and our dreams that we might pray truly in Jesus' name and realize the great things you desire for your people. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.